Welcome to Nishi History, where we eschew the most famous tales and spotlight the lesser-known stories, the forgotten names, the interesting places, and the random topics of history. With me, Jessa Briggs, we'll dive deep into the archives and embark on a journey scouring the nooks and crannies of history. Today's is the story of an ancient ruin, of a temple dedicated to two religions that has survived for 900 years. It's a story of history coming to life through architecture, art, and conservation. Today is a story of Cambodia's Angkor Wat. Angkor Wat is considered the largest religious monument in the world. The ancient city where it sits, Angkor, used significantly more stone blocks than the Egyptian pyramids combined, so all three of the Gaza pyramids combined, and it covers more space than the entire city of Paris, modern city of Paris. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site because of its gorgeous architecture and its priceless insights into the ancient Kumar Empire. I did a whole episode on it and I still can't say it. Angkor Wat is the giant city temple inside of the ancient city of Angkor, including forested areas and the evidence of neighborhoods around the city center. Angkor, the city, covers more than 400 square kilometers. The UNESCO site believes that Anchor is, quote, one of the most important archaeological sites in Southeast Asia, unquote. UNESCO also said, quote, temples such as Anchor Wat, the Bayan, Precon, and Taprom are exemplars of Kumar architecture and are closely linked to their geographical context as well as being imbued with symbolic significance, end quote. These facts are the justification for the UNESCO World Heritage Site title that Anchor, and therefore Anchor Wat, claims, because it holds cultural, religious, symbolic, architectural, archaeological, and artistic significance, which we'll get more into the UNESCO World Heritage Site at the end of the episode. So what is Anchor Wat? Taurus Cambodia says, quote, its perfection in composition, balance, proportions, reliefs, and sculpture make it one of the finest monuments in the world, unquote. If you remember from last episode's teasers, Angkor Wat was built under the reign of King Suryavarman II during the Kumar, during the Kumar Empire's thousand years or so of war and tribulation. That is my cat chewing on my TV. Everyone say hello to Drew if you can hear her. She is a menace. Okay. Angkor Wat was built over 28 years, estimated between 1122 and 1150 CE. Corresponding with King Suryavarman II's religion, Angkor Wat was originally constructed as a Hindu temple. But unlike most of the Angkorian temples, it was dedicated not to Shiva, the destroyer in Hin- in the Hindu trilogy of like the main gods. It's instead dedicated to Vishnu, who is known as the preserver, and he is also part of the trilogy. Angkor Wat served as both the state temple and the capital city under King Suryavarman II's rule. Shortly after his death all work on the temple stopped. While all the buildings were completed, some of the bas reliefs, which are like the stone murals, were unfinished. And recently they have found other evidence of construction sites that look like they were abandoned or maybe torn down while Anchor Wat was being built. Those also could have been part of the project that was abandoned <laughs> when Soya Varman II died. 
According to Taurus Cambodia, Angkor Wat was not only the state temple and the capital city, but it's believed also to be the funerary temple for King Suryavarman II. I don't believe his remains or ashes or anything were ever found at Angkor Wat, but the temple is oriented to the west, which is very different from other Angkorian temples, which are oriented to the east. The fact that Angkor Wat faces west is symbolic, like any temple that faces west, um, and it's symbolic of the setting sun and of death. So that's what leads archaeologists and historians to believe that Soyavarman II actually constructed Angkor Wat with the thought in mind that it would be his final resting place. In the 13th century or the 14th century, or somewhere between those two, most Cambodians converted to Theravada Buddhism. Angkor Wat then was also converted, and so statues of Buddha were added to its decoration to switch the religious dedication. Ooh, I gave myself a little rhyme there. This conversion happened during Angkor's long period of decline. So while Angkor reached its peak in the 12th century, by the 1600s, the 400-square-kilometer city, once the capital of the ancient world's largest empire, was almost completely overtaken by the jungle. And of all the temples in the Angkor area, only Angkor Wat was still functioning. But if you remember, when I talked about the Kumar Empire, it did not collapse, it declined. Same thing with its temple use. So, Angkor Wat was never actually abandoned. And because it was never fully abandoned, it's special among Cambodian ancient artifacts, in addition to the fact that it's gigantic and beautiful. But we'll get into that. <laughs> Throughout the 1600s, Japanese Buddhist pilgrims set up settlements with the dwindling Kumara population, and then they became like the last portion of people to keep it alive. There are 14 inscriptions found around the entire city of Angkor that tells us about these pilgrim settlements. The best known inscription tells of Yukundeyu Kazufusa who celebrated the Kumur New Year at Angkor Wat in 1632. Before we get into more modern times, I want to take a minor detour to some archaeological ideas. This idea was reported on by Marissa Caruthers in her 2021 BBC article titled Anchor, Asia's Ancient Hydraulic City. The link, of course, is in the episode description if you want to read her full article. It's really good. So in the 1950s and 60s, Cambodia was quote-unquote benignly ruled by France. So French historians, archaeologists, etc., etc., were all over Angkor Wat. Archaeologist Bernard-Philippe Grosselier used aerial archaeology to map Angkor's sprawling region. Bernard's reconstruction of Angkor, which like is the whole city, included the, a vast water network... And so then Grosselier therefore named Anchor the Hydraulic City. If you remember, we touched on this briefly in the last episode when we were talking about the culture and society of the Kumar Empire. And I'm going to say this right here. I know I didn't title these as parts, but if you haven't listened to my episode on the Kumar Empire, go listen to that. It's really interesting. It talks about the ancient civilization 
And I think you'll get a little bit more excitement as we walk through the temple in a second because you'll have that history of where the temple came from and how it was used. So go listen to that and then rejoin us here. (laughs) For those of you who have already listened, remember how water management was directly related to the power someone held in the empire. These discoveries in modern times, first by Bernard in the 50s, and then in 2012 through airborne laser scanning technology used by archaeologist Damien Evans, who was also French, actually. This is the evidence building the societal understanding of how water was so important. The archaeology that uncovered this 1,200-kilometer water system though, exposes more than just social and economic conditions in ancient Cambodia. The ecological impact of this water system is critical to the foundations of the ancient temples. And that's why we're talking about it today, because I went over the social aspect of it in the last episode. But the water system may be the reason that these temples have lasted so long. I mean, Angkor wise, 900 years old. According to Caruther's BBC article, quote, the sandy soil alone is not enough to withstand the weight of the stones. However, master engineers discovered mixing sand and water creates stable foundations, so the moats that surround each temple were designed to provide a constant supply of groundwater. This has created foundations strong enough to keep the temples stable and prevent them from crumbling all these centuries later, unquote. So basically, the way the ancient builders constructed the temples relied on a steady supply of groundwater to keep the ground strong enough to hold the monuments, which is great. Except (laughs) when Angkor Wat was quote unquote rediscovered by French explorers, restoration projects started. This increased awareness of this incredible temple. And so tourism steadily rose. And this is all good for, for now but it also meant a huge increase of water demand. Plus, from 2009 to 2011, there was huge monsoon, were huge monsoon? No, there was huge monsoon flooding. Can you believe I have a degree in English? There was huge monsoon flooding. So during this time, there either wasn't enough water because of the increased water demand from restoration and tourism, or there was too much water from lots of flooding. So this triggered restoration focus on the ancient water system. It was effective in mitigating monsoon season in ancient times and in keeping the foundations of the temples stable. So surely it had to be effective in securing anchor now. This huge restoration project was headed by Apsara National Authority, the acronym of which I do not know the words to and which we will talk about at the end of the episode. They are important. Um, just some of the hydraulic systems waterways that have been restored include Anchor Thom's 12-kilometer moat, the West Beret, and the 10th century basin, Shrashrang. All of these are on the Instagram, along with the ruler that they were constructed under, in case you want to take a look, because that was part of last episode's. So to wrap up Anchor's Hydraulic City legacy, from the BBC article, quote, the vast system that dates back centuries continues to satisfy Sam Reap's thirst by providing a constant water supply, preventing destructive flooding, and providing the foundations that will keep Anchor's sacred temple stable well into the future, unquote. 
And if you remember, Siem Reap is the province in Cambodia, which Angkor, the ancient city, is in. And then Angkor Wat is in Angkor. This has all led us into the present Angkor Wat. We'll get into the restoration at the end of the episode, but I'm going to finish out our timeline. The first Western visitor to the temple was Antonio de Madalena, a Portuguese friar who visited in 1586 and said, quote, It is of such extraordinary construction that it is not possible to describe it with a pen, particularly since it is like no other building in the world. It has towers and decoration and all the refinements which the human genius can conceive of, end quote. So that was in 1586. And then we've got inscriptions from the Japanese Buddhist pilgrims throughout the 1600s. And then I think for about 100 years, maybe 200 years, it kind of goes silent. And then the French first took over Cambodia in the 1860s. And it didn't take them long to bring the Western world's attention to Angkor Wat when they, quote unquote, rediscovered the ancient city of Angkor. And I should say, one of the reasons that I am putting rediscover in quotes is one, because all of the sources do that. And the reasons that they do that, and therefore I am doing that, is because Anchor Watt was never fully abandoned. And my cats are fighting. I'm so sorry. They were both asleep when I started recording. If you hear them fighting, it's just our mascots cheering. All right. <laughs> so Anchor Watt was never fully abandoned. I mean, people weren't living in the ancient temple in this, you know, 1700s and 1800s but obviously the people in the area knew about this gigantic temple and i think they were still going there to worship and pray i mean they're doing it now in modern times which we'll get into so i can only assume that they were doing it the whole time it was never lost so it couldn't be rediscovered right some sources claim that the artistic value of Angkor Wat and other Kumar Empire ruins is actually a direct reason for France adopting Cambodia as a protectorate. And protectorate means a state that is controlled and protected by another. But uh, Cambodia by no means asked France for protection. They didn't really want the French, but the French wanted Angkor Wat. And so they went in anyways. <laughs> The French scholars in the late 1800s, quote, deciphered the inscriptions, dated the temples, and rediscovered the names and sequence of forgotten Angkorian kings, end quote. Then in 1953, almost 100 years after Angkor Wat's quote unquote rediscovery, Cambodia gained its independence from the French. Then Cambodia fell into civil war that lasted from 1970 to 1975. The Khmer Rouge era after, which we'll talk about in the next episode, was incredibly, indescribably destructive. And I don't want you to think of skipping over this because it is a piece of history that the Western world has skipped over and it is horrendous what happened in Cambodia. But I'm going to spend all of the next episode on it. So for today, we are going to move on. So once the Khmer Rouge was toppled, Cambodia has since then successfully controlled Angkor Wat. It was declared a UNESCO monument in danger in 1992, and then through intense restoration efforts, which we'll talk about at the end of the episode, 
in 2004, it was taken off that and is now just a UNESCO World Heritage Site since it is no longer considered in danger. And since its 19th century reintroduction to the global world, Angkor Wat has played an extensive role in Cambodian culture and identity. Angkor Wat has been on the Cambodian national flag in all its iterations since it was first introduced around 1860. And apparently, Cambodia is the only nation in the world whose flag has ruins on it. So that shows just how much the ancient city of Angkor, and Angkor Wat specifically, how much they are a crucial component of Cambodia's identity. Now that we know the what and the when, I want to talk about the insides. All right, so I have talked and talked and talked about how beautiful Angkor Wat is, but now I'm going to get into the specifics. I'm still going to talk because that's all I can do. This is a podcast, but I'm going to tell you what exactly is beautiful. And I'm sure I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, but Angkor Wat is in my top three places to go before I die. Um, it has been there since the seventh grade, and the fact that it stayed in my top three places for 15 years, that means a lot considering I've wanted to travel the world since I was in middle school. It's absolutely gorgeous, and I am going to wow you with words about how gorgeous it is, but also look at the pictures that I have posted on the Instagram and that are linked in the site sources so that you can see I'm not exaggerating. I'm going to try and not get too excited and explain this in a very logical, easy to follow manner. But <laughs> uh, I might I might start jumping. So just <laughs> bear with me, okay? But it will be fun. It really will be fun. So let's start with the general like shape and structure of the temple because it goes beyond just facing west to signify burial for the king. Overall, Angkor Wat is, a, is an incredible example of Kumar architecture. Maurice Glaze, a mid-20th century conservator of Angkor Wat, said of the temple, quote, it attains a classic perfection by the restrained monumentality of its finely balanced elements and the precise arrangement of its proportions. It is a work of power, unity, and style, end quote. It all works together. And that's incredible considering how gigantic it was and how old it is. For the structure, there are basically four layers. There's a three-mile-long moat and then a 2.2-mile-long a outer wall. And then there are three rectangular galleries that work like a three-step staircase. So each one is taller than the one below it. The moat and the wall were used for protection partially, but also the whole design of the temple is actually meant to represent Mount Muru. Probably not how it's pronounced, but that's how we'll pronounce it here. Mount Muru is the home of the gods in both the Hindu and Buddhist faiths. So Angkor Wat has five main towers arranged like a five shows on a die, right? So four in the corner and one in the center. And this makes up 
the fourth and center layer of the temple complex. And they are meant to recreate the five peaks of Mount Meru. And then the outer wall and the moat represent the mountains and the sea of that like world. So actually let's pause here and talk about Mount Meru since that's what Angkor Wat is trying to imitate or worship. Mount Meru is a five peak mountain of Hindu. John it's J A I N. I don't know how to pronounce that and Buddhist face. <laughs> But we are only going to focus on Hindu and Buddhist beliefs because those are the religions that Angkor Wat has been dedicated to. So when these religions, cosmetologies, cosmologies, which is the beliefs in origins of the universe, Mount Meru is the center of all the physical, metaphysical, and spiritual universes. Okay. It's supposed to be outside of the mortal world and it's like the center of all creation so let's talk about the differences between buddhist cosmology and hindu cosmology so let's discuss the differences between buddhist cosmology and hindu cosmology in terms of mount meru so we'll start with the hindu religion since that was the first religion of Angkor wat and the one that it was built to represent in Hindu traditions, Mount Meru is 84,000 yojanas high. I am so sorry if it's if the J is supposed to be an H sound. I am going to say yojanas. <laughs> so yojanas are a traditional measure of unit specifically meant to measure the universe. The equivalent measurements kind of differ. Um, and I don't know who is who who created the comparisons, but a yojana is generally equivalent to nine miles. So if Mount Miro is 84,000 yojanas high, that would make it about 672,000 miles high. That is a gigantic number, like too big to comprehend, but I am going to try to make us comprehend. 672,000 miles is 85 times the Earth's diameter. And if we scale it down some more, the Americas, so from the tip of North America to the bottom of South America, is 8,700 miles, which means Mount Muro is 77 times longer. It is also equivalent to 122,182 Mount Everests stacked on top of each other. <laughs> it is gigantic, which is... Appropriate because Mount Miro is the very center of the universe, literally. Uh, in Hinduism, the sun, moon, and all the planets revolve around Mount Miro. And then specific descriptions of the Hindi Mount Miro are sparse and conflicting, which I'm guessing is actually just because there aren't many English translations. I I am sure that the Hindu like religious texts and such that they've got pretty good descriptions. But some of the sources that I was able to find say that it's a gold mountain or that it's four faces, not its peaks. There are five of those. The faces are crystal, ruby, gold, and lapis lazuli. Now, if you remember from the last episode, the Hindi, the Hindu religion believes in reincarnation. Mount Miro is also a place where 
newly deceased people will go to chill while they wait to be reincarnated. Some Hindu beliefs, because remember there are like different branches of Hinduism, but some Hindu beliefs put an anchor of Mount Muru on the physical world and the foothills of Mount Miru are said to be in the Himalayan mountains somewhere. In Buddhist cosmology, Mount Miru is still the center of the world. But the difference here is that Buddhists believe Mount Miru is literally the center of the world. So it's, it's on earth and it's the core of the earth. But it's about the same size, with some ancient texts saying 80,000 yojanas high and some saying 84,000. The Buddhist Mount Muro's four faces are also made of different precious materials, but we know that north is gold, the north face is gold, east is crystal, south is lapis lazuli, and west is ruby. The sun and the moon revolve around Mount Muro because remember it is anchored in the center of earth. So when the sun passes behind, that's when it becomes nighttime. Now, in Buddhist beliefs, there are several layers and types of heaven. Some of them are connected to the physical world, and then some of them are not. I'm assuming the ones that are not are where the gods hang out, because the ones that are connected to the heavens are the ones that deal with humans. But the highest heaven that is connected to the physical world is at the peak of Mount Meru, which is the center of the world. And I would tell you the name of that heaven. I have it but I can't pronounce it. So, sorry. But I can tell you that the ruler of this heaven is called Sakra, and he apparently consults the Buddha on matters of morality, and he's considered a protector of Buddhism, which is also called a Dharmapala. Mount Muru is also supposed to be the home of the Buddha Kakrasamvara. Can you tell I've been practicing that? I don't know if I have this 100% correct because I I didn't do a gigantic deep dive into Buddhism. That's for another day. But I believe that this is a type of Buddha, maybe the mainstream Buddha, I think, maybe, that came out of a yoga and tantra genre of Buddha scriptures called the Kakrasamvara Tantra. Are you with me? <laughs> so it's considered that is considered a fundamental scripture that has formed a lot of modern Buddhist practices. So yeah, I believe that the Buddha from that scripture is meant to live on Mount Muru. So that's Mount Muru, the center of the world, the center of the universe, the home of the gods and the Buddha. It's a big deal which maybe puts into perspective why Angkor Wat is so massive and why it's so precise and detailed. According to Taurus Cambodia, Angkor Wat is the earthly model of the cosmic universe. So the five pillars for Mount Muru, the wall for the mountains and the end of the world, and the moat for the seas that extended to the universe. We've talked about the universe. Let's talk about the earthly model. Inside the outer wall... Anchor Wat stretches across 200 acres. Archaeologists and historians believe inside these walls were a small, like, sub suburb-type city, the temple itself, and then the emperor's palace, which, according to History.com, was to the north of the temple. That's one of the projects that they think was probably abandoned when the king died, um, so it was never fully finished, and then it kind of just crumpled. 
But out of all of this, only the temple and the outer wall were built with sandstone, which was quite usual for the time. But, I mean, some of the sandstone blocks for Angkor Wat weighed 1.5 tons. And I, a ton is 2,000 pounds, right? So that's a lot. <laughs> I'm not going to try and do the math and embarrass myself. It's a lot. So it's a lot of work. And that means that the rest of the structures were made from organic materials that were much easier to work with, you know, things like wood, which have long since rotted away. But thanks to modern technology assisting archaeologists, they've been able to form an idea of what the city around Angkor Wat looked like from the remains of like mounds and f foundations and such, which is why it's accepted that there was a city inside the outer wall. So when you Google Angkor Wat, you'll see three rings of rectangles. And these are the three main levels, right? The third of which goes around four of the five main towers. Where the city used to be has been overtaken again by the jungle, which most of the temple was too until the restoration, which we'll talk about later. Now, I am going to walk you through a virtual audio tour of the temple. And I mean, I could be hired as a tour guide for Anchor Wat. I've, I have just done so much work putting this virtual tour together. And the reason why is because if you go into the Google Maps street view of Anchor Wat, you can walk, you can basically walk through the temple. It takes a little bit of finessing, but really, I've left a link of the starting point of your tour. And if you follow me through, you should be able to take a virtual, both audio and visual tour of Anchor Wat. So go click on that. You'll start on the sandstone bridge where you cross the moat. Follow along with me if you'd like to see for yourself virtually some of the incredible things I'll be describing. If not, lay back, close your eyes, and try to visualize. Go in through the east entrance, or at least it's titled the east entrance in the maps I was looking at, and you walk across the sandstone bridge. You face the western gupura, and don't ask me how that works. <laughs> a gupura is a ceremonial entrance tower type thing that's on a lot of Hindu temples. So while you're walking through this intricate entrance, you'll be accompanied by around five large deities. One of these is called Tarich, and it is a massive statue of the patron god Vishnu. This is, quote, regarded as one of the most sacred and divine figures whom people faithfully believe and pray upon for happiness and prosperity, unquote. So you'll want to take a second for him to really soak his power in. And then this won't be on your virtual tour, so don't, don't move. But... Next to the Western Gopura is another entrance known as the Elephant Gate because it's big enough to fit an elephant through and is believed to have, indeed, allowed entrance to elephants. So once you're through the Western Gopura, you're on the walkway leading to the main terrace. Now you can see all five of the towers and their beauty. At least I believe this is when the iconic view of the Anchor Wat, the one that's on the Cambodian flag, can be seen. Uh, but it also could have been before the Western Gopura. The English translations aren't always great, and I can't tell what they're saying. But I know that you have to be past the outer wall before the five towers are visible. 
So you're on the terrace walkway. You'll see low statues of a seven-headed serpent on each side of you. They're guarding the temple, watching you as you approach. So if you're following along on Google, you'll have seen these serpents at the start of the bridge across the moat as well. Before you get to the temple, there are libraries on each side and a pond between each library and the temple itself. So you finish that long walkway when you see the seven-headed serpent again, ending that long, low statue. In front of you, heading up to the elevated temple, is the Terrace of Honor. The staircase that you will ascend is flanked by four lions. So you're on the terrace, and you're looking at the entrance of the first gallery, and you're looking at another gopura, right, a ceremonial entrance. Now that you're close enough, you can see that the temple walls are carved and crafted with incredible mastery. Nearly all of its surfaces, from the columns to the roofs, are carved. From the outside into the three galleries are thousands of bas-reliefs of Hindu and Buddhist mythology. An anchor wall also has around 18... 1800 depictions of Devada, which are uh, female deities or spirit women in Hinduism. And then there are smaller images of these women from 12 to 16 inches that are on the pillars and the walls to full body portraits between 37 and 43 inches at every level of the temple. And the most impressive thing about these women is that they are all unique. So there are 1800 different hairstyles Head headdresses, garments, poses, jewelry, even facial expressions. The temple stands on a terrace raised higher than the city. So you're looking up the steps leading into the first of the three rectangular levels. And like I said, each one is slightly higher than the one b- before it. The first level which is open before you're even really into the temple, meaning there aren't solid walls blocking it out. You can see hints of the artwork from the Terrace of Honor, and a small staircase will lead you inside. The first, or outer gallery, is home to some of the most incredible bas-reliefs, to be said, quote, the greatest known linear arrangement of stone carving, end quote, because of its depictions of the Hindu epics Ramayana and Mahabharata. Nailed it. (laughs) This first gallery is often known as the Gallery of Bas Relief. Real quick, I've thrown around the term Bas Relief, which I think I've also said base relief. I think it's Bas. <laughs> I've thrown that around a lot. What it means is that the reliefs, so the carved scenes, are anchor wat, were, were created by carving away the background of the stone, which leaving the design in relief. So it looks as if it comes out of the wall. You will find some carvings created by the reversed method where you carve the designs into the stone so they're sunken in. I'll try to find a side-by-side comparison to put on Instagram, but most of the pictures that I've seen is the the boss relief where it, the seeds are coming out of the wall. The gallery of boss relief is about 12,917 square feet of sandstone carving. The carvings cover most of the inner wall and they go from floor to ceiling, which is about seven feet tall. This is how Taurus Cambodia describes the first gallery. Quote, the detail, quality, composition, and execution give them an unequaled status in world art. 
Columns along the outer wall of the gallery create an intriguing interplay of light and shadow on the relief. The effect is one of textured wallpaper that looks like the work of painters rather than sculptors. The boss reliefs are of dazzling rich decoration, always kept in check, never allowed to run unbridled over wall and ceiling. They possess strength and repose, imagination, and power of fantasy. End quote. So there are four walls in this rectangular gallery, obviously, and each of these have two boss reliefs, splitting the square gallery into eight sections. There are two pavilions in the corners. I mean, obviously there are four corners, but there are two decorated pavilions with smaller motifs and carvings. If you've just passed the Terrace of Honor and entered the temple, you'll be looking at a courtyard of sorts with two sacred pools, one on each side. But don't go into the courtyard. That comes later. Instead, turn right and you'll enter the Western Gallery's first section, the Battle of Kurukshetra. And this is from the Hindu epic Mahabharata. And it's a battle between rival cousin clans, the Karuvas and the Pandavas. The two armies march from each end of the boss relief and meet in combat at the center. There are dancers right before the battlefield with soldiers fighting and dying. Officers and generals, differentiated from their underlings by their larger size on the relief, are looking over the battle. The panel gets more and more intense until both armies are destroyed. Once you pass this relief, take some time at that southwest corner where there is a collection of smaller artistic pieces and statues. It's said that the boss reliefs in this pavilion depict scenes from the epic Ramayana. Then you'll move on into the southern gallery. Here is the only historical scene, a procession of Surya Varman II, Therefore, the South Gallery is often known as the Historical Gallery. This boss relief depicts a war procession of a successful Kumar army. It shows Kumar fighting methods, which are mostly hand-to-hand, because they didn't have any knowledge of firearms or anything like that. King Suryavarman II shows up twice in this boss relief. In one section, he's holding an audience on a mountain. Some historians believe that he was that this section was added in after his death. Um, so I wonder, could this be Mount Meru? You know, that would be kind of cool. Just a thought. But then in another section, the king is on an elephant with the with a headdress and a sword across his shoulder. It's a depiction of the parades that we talked about in the last episode. So we've got the fancy women with the umbrellas and the elephants and everything. And Vishnu is also there for some reason. He's the patron god. And he's just hanging out. So we have the war procession. And then I believe this is a second one. And it's the procession of the sacred fire. And we've got the king and elephant and Vishnu in front. And then they are followed by the sacred fire in an arch. And then standard bearers, magicians, and jesters. And then finally, Brahmins, which are the like Hindu priests, they chat during chat. They chant during a royal sacrifice. After this sacred fire scene, the Surya Varman boss relief nears its end. The military procession from the beginning resumes, probably to show the strength of resilience of the Kumar armies. 
And that's how the boss relief ends. So that's section one of the South Gallery and the second of the eight that you've seen. If you keep walking, you'll find the second Southern Gallery boss relief, which depicts Hinduism's 32 hells and 37 heavens. This carving is also known as Judgment by Yama, Heaven and Hell. So three tiers recount the judgment of mankind by Yama, and two tiers depict Heaven and Hell. The scenes of leisure and scenes of torture are separated by draperies and apsaras, which are female deities similar to like an ancient Greek nymph. There's a row of gar- garudas all along the bottom, and garudas are divine eagle-like sunbirds. Now, the original roof of this galley was destroyed by lightning in 1947. It's been restored by the French, but it's not the original. And that's a huge bummer because even the roofs of Angkor Wat were intricately decorated, showing a motif of the body of a serpent that ended in heads of lions or garudas. A lot of them also had, I always wanted to say rosettes, but they're not. Uh, yeah, rosettes, I think, which you'll see pictures of. And then also the lower section of the heaven and hell panel was badly damaged and then was later filled with cement. I don't know if that means that it can no longer be seen. I'm hoping that the cement is just like on the inside for stability, but I'm not sure. And then it's very sad if we can't see the bottom of this. So once you've left the heaven and hell boss relief and all the craziness that's going on there, like there's a lot going on in that one, you'll walk around the corner and enter the Eastern gallery. On this side of the Eastern gallery is one of the most famous scenes of all of Angkor Wat. And it's called the churning of the sea of milk or the ocean of milk, which is what I'll call it from now on. Inside the boss relief are 92 asuras, which are like demonic demigods in Hinduism, like demons. And then there are 88 divas, or gods and deities. And these two sides are using the serpent god Vasuki to churn at the sea under Vishnu's direction. And remember, Vishnu is the preserver in the Hindu trio of gods, and he's also known as the maintainer. The churning of the ocean of milk comes from the Indian epic Bhagavata Purana. In the epic, and simultaneously depicted in the boss relief, the ocean of milk, which I never got an explanation why the ocean is made of milk. Why not water or like wine? Um, But the ocean of milk is being churned by gods and demons, so the Asuras and the Divas, to generate Amtra. A-M-R-T-A. Amtra. How do you do M-R? Anyway, it's the elixir of life. The gods and demons are churning also to recover lost treasures, which according to Taurus Cambodia, this included like the source of immortality, um, Lakshmi, the goddess of good fortune, the milk-white elephant of Indra, who is another god, Hindu god, and then the nymph of loveliness. Generating the elixir of life and retrieving these treasures symbolizes prosperities. And in a lot of the myths retellings, the serpent god is wrapped around the center of the earth. And so moving the serpent back and forth twists the center of the earth, which is like a mountain rod. It basically looks like a giant tree trunk. And that causes the ocean to churn. And then Vishnu is in, I guess, like an alternate form. I think he has eight of these. And he's in his, so he's in his tortoise form. And his shell 
is holding up what's called Mount Mandara, which is that center that they're churning, and that sinks into the ocean while it's being churned by the gods and the demons. So Vishnu is working as um, like the foundation and the st- and the stabilizer, right? The maintainer. He's keeping that up while it's being churned. So in Anchor Wat, the churning of the ocean of milk boss relief in the East Gallery has three tiers. And you can find really good pictures of this boss relief and also like recreations um, because it's so famous. And so this is one of the only ones that you can really take a look at without actually going to the temple. So try try and find that. Um, so the lower tier, the lowest tier, shows the ocean with all sorts of like fish and other aquatic animals, real and mythic. And then it's bordered by a serpent whose tail is on comes up on one end where the divas are, and then the head is on the other end with the asuras. And then speaking of, the middle tier shows the actual churning. So on one side with the serpent head are the 92 demons, which tourist Cambodia describes as having, quote, round bulging eyes and crested helmets, end quote. Then on the other side are 88 gods all in a row, uh, and they're with the tail, right? And they've got, quote, almond-shaped eyes and conical headdresses, end quote. So keeping with the myth, these two sides are pulling and pulling at the serpent. And apparently the mon- monkey god Hanuman is helping with the churning. I believe he's on, he's tickling the tail. He's on the side of the gods and he's over there tickling the tail and that's how he's helping. <laughs> um, so in the center of the relief is the big show. At the very bottom center is Tortoise Vishnu, right? And his shell is acting as an anchor for the mountain Mandara, which looks like a gigantic tree trunk. And then there's a four-armed dude in the middle who I'm still not sure entirely who that is. (laughs) So there are three main characters that are physically bigger than the 92 demons and the 88 gods, which is the Angorian art technique that shows... A higher, a higher status. So if you are larger in the image, then you have a higher status. These three physically bigger characters are the head honchos running the show. So Indra, who is an ancient diva renowned as the king of the heavens and the god of rain and thunder, is on top of Vishnu. So I think he's probably the one in the middle of the mountain Mandara, the one with the forearms. And then on the far right is Hanuman, Right, so the monkey god, and he is tickling the serpent's tail. And then I can't actually figure out exactly who the third bigger guy is, who and he who's on the far left with the demons. I'm not entirely sure who he is. <laughs> and then in the upper tier, there is a human-shaped Vishnu who is overseeing the churning. Either he could actually be in the middle tier the guy with the four arms or he's the winged person that's like standing on top of mount mandara there is a winged person like kneeling up there but the winged person on top of the mountain mandara looks like all the other beings in the third tier which are flying female spirits so i don't know where the heck human vishnu is (laughs) but at least tortoise vishnu is easy to find now the next part i'm not exactly sure if it's represented in the boss relief or if it's just the end of the myth um, there's not a full picture of the churning of the ocean of milk, probably because it's huge. And that's why I can't figure out who's on the left with the demons. Cause I never actually can, could see a recreation of that side of the boss relief, but either way, here's the end of the myth and maybe the boss relief. 
So as the Asuras and the Divas are churning, they cause the god serpent to vomit, and his vomit is mortal venom, which covers the ocean. Rama, a Hindu god, is worried that the venom will destroy the gods and demon who need to keep churning for prosperity so they can't become mortal and die. So Brahma asks Shiva, the destroyer, the supreme being of Shavism, the guy whose temp- who temples are usually dedicated to in anger, Shiva is asked to drink the venom. Shiva does, despite the venom permanently damaging his throat. But his sacrifice allows a life of elixir to pour forth, making the churning a success. The demons rush to get the elixir of life. And then Visha takes his third form, in the, which is the form of Maya, a quote, bewitching beauty, end quote. And he is able to reclaim most of the liquid from the demons. So that makes Vishnu the hero of the story times three. Because first he's the tortoise that keeps Mount Mandara stable. Then he's the human Vishnu who oversees the churning. And then he's Maya who captures the life, the elixir of life. This is particularly potent because Anchor Wat is dedicated to Vishnu. I'd assume that the boss relief of the churning of Ocean of Milk was created with extra care because it's such a pro-Vishnu story, and thus it's become one of the most famous boss reliefs among the thousands inside the temple. Um, and no, I will not be describing them all, just most of the ones inside the outer gallery. Stick with me. <laughs> and most of them are dedicated to Vishnu or show Vishnu in some sort of like hero uh, role. And speaking of Vishnu... <laughs> Um, remember that each of the four walls of the gallery of bas relief is split into two sections. So even with all of its grandeur and fame, the churning of the ocean of milk isn't an exception. It only takes up half of the Eastern gallery. So once you reach the end of that one, you actually hit an inscription in the middle between the two bas reliefs. And it's an 18th century edition. So during the time the Angkor Wat functioned as a Buddhist monastery and when it was getting a lot of like Buddhist pilgrims. The inscription is from a provincial governor marking the tomb of his wife and children. And then past the inscription is a 16th century bas relief, so a couple hundred years newer than the original King Jayavarman II's Angkor Wat. This is the bas relief of Vishnu's victory over demons. So Vishnu, patron god of the temple, don't forget, I'll only say it about a hundred more times in this episode. He is sitting at the center of the panel on top of a Garuda, which is the sunbird thing. An army of demons is marching towards the sitting Vishnu. Vishnu, quote, slaughters the enemies on both sides and disperses the bodies, end quote. And Kumar soldiers surround the only survivors, which are the leader of the demons. And this signals the complete victory of Vishnu and his followers. All right, so now we've seen five of the eight baths reliefs in the first gallery. We saw one from the west gallery, both from the south, and now both from the east. So you'll turn the next corner away from Vishnu's victory over demons and into the northern gallery's first section, Krishna's victory over Bana. Before I detail this boss relief, let me tell you who Krishna and Bana are. Bana is easy. He's a demon king. Krishna is a little more complicated. He is the eighth incarnation of Vishnu. So he is Vishnu, but he is also his own god, I think. And he is the god of compassion, protection, tenderness, and love. 
So it's Vishnu, but it's not Vishnu. It's Krishna. I don't understand. I think very soon I'm going to have to do an episode on Hindu mythology, I think. So, but we'll see. So this boss relief has Krishna and two heroes sitting on the shoulders of Garuda, the sunbirds. Behind him is the god of fire on a rhinoceros. Agni, the god of fire, has multiple arms. Krishna and an army of gods are trying to get into a city, but the wall surrounding the city is on fire. And then both of these scenes, so Vishnu on the sunbird and then him and his army of gods trying to get into the city. Both of these apparently repeat themselves several times in the panel. It seems like there's just some repetition to fill up the space in the relief, to be honest. Uh, don't tell the king I said that. <laughs> I haven't seen the whole boss relief. Maybe there is some logic that I just don't know. So they're at the wall that's on fire. And the sunbirds, the Garuda, are able to stop the fire with water from the sacred river Gangi, Ganges. <laughs> from a sacred river. All right. The demon Bana, uh, who who is described with, quote, multiple arms and mounted on a rhinoceros. God. Okay. I think I'm going to leave that in because that's just so horrendous. A rhinoceros. Okay. So the demon Bana, he has, quote, multiple arms and is mounted on a rhinoceros. <laughs> A rhinoceros. End quote. <laughs> so the demon is is entering from the other side of the city. He approaches from the other side of the city. At the far right of the panel, at what I'm guessing is the end of the saga, is Krishna with a thousand heads. So we're at like a new scene. And I did say a thousand with three zeros. So he's got a thousand heads and He's got his hands across his chest. So he's kneeling in front of a throned Shiva. Um, his wife, Parvati, Parvati, and his son, Ganisa. And they are demanding that Krishna spares the life of Bana. Just like the rest of the reliefs, the victory of Krishna over Bana is representing a myth in Hinduism. And this one is reportedly very important to King Jayavarman II because it's yet another instance of Vishnu, or at least one of Vishnu's um, incarnations, being the hero of the story rather than Shiva, which was the Angkorian tradition, right? So the second North Gallery relief is the battle between the gods and the demons. In fear of losing you to repetition, I won't go into deep detail with this one. It does what the title says, right? 21 major gods from Hinduism make an appearance, and most, if not all, are mounted on a variety of real and mythical creatures. Maybe the rhinoceros is in there somewhere. Um, and they're gauged in one-on-one -on -one battle with demons, right? So when you round the corner this time, you'll hit the second decorated pavilion at the northwest corner of the outer gallery. Taurus Cambodia suggests walking counterclockwise around this pavilion. As you do, you can look around at the several scenes that are still in really good condition. Then, to finish your walk around the first gallery, the Gallery of Boss Relief, you should enter the Western Gallery again and see the Battle of Lanka Boss Relief, which is a scene from the Hindu epic Ramayana. And this is a one-on-one -on -one battle between 
Rama, one of the most worshipped gods in Hinduism, and a demon king, Ravana, who is portrayed as having 10 heads and 20 arms. The Battle of Lanka is one of the most artistic pieces in all of Angkor Wat. So I will be boring you with an extended description. You're welcome. Here we go. So the battle takes place in Lanka, which is modern Sri Lanka, and it ends with Rama defeating Ravana and rescuing his wife Sita, who had been captured by Ravana. While the two main guys fight, they each have armies fighting each other. And these armies are actually reportedly the central figure figures of the boss reliefs. On Rama's side are monkey warriors, and on Ravana's sides are Raksasas, maybe. Probably not, but that's how I'm going to say it. Raksasas are, quote, a race of usually malevolent beings prominently featured in Hindu mythology. They reside on Earth but possess supernatural powers, unquote. And also, according to the pictures I've seen, they are absolutely terrifying. Just Google it. The first picture that comes up, absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, the colors might have something to do with it. They might not be as scary in Anchor Watt, but I haven't been able to find a picture of this specific one that's like in good form. According to Taurus Cambodia, quote, the brutality of war is juxtaposed with the graceful rendition of Lisum of leith some monkeys end quote there are quite a few battle scenes and fighting scenes before ravana's ultimate defeat now once you've taken in the battle of lanka boss relief you're back where you started to your right should see the battle of kuruk shetra right where we started now it's time to enter the second gallery To get from the gallery of boss relief to the second level of the temple proper, you'll want to be back at the Terrace of Honor so you can walk through a cruciform cloister called Priyapon or the Thousand Buddhas Gallery or the Hall of a Thousand Buddhas. Now remember that right inside the Terrace of Honor, there's a courtyard area. Right? There are four sacred pools in this courtyard with three walkways in the middle and when I say three walkways, so there's one that goes between the four pools. So there's two on each side. And then there's one on the left and one on the right. In the middle, is just a it's just a walkway. But there are a couple of big deities by the sacred pools that you can stop and see. The left walkway is called the Hall of Echoes. And then the right walkway is the Hall of a Thousand Buddhas. Buddha statues and images that have been left there by pilgrims and centuries is what lends this hall its name. It's one of the most holy sections of the temple. I'm going to talk a little bit about what it is and some of the statues, but there is so much more to this section of the temple. So I urge you to please go look at Hello Anchor's page on the Hall of a Thousand Buddhas. Obviously, it's linked in the source description. And that page talks about like the hall's inscriptions and paintings and other carvings. And then it also has present day pictures versus pictures from the early 1900s from before most of the Buddhas were destroyed or removed. Hello Anchor is a great guide to the Hall of a Thousand Buddhas. Quote, you will notice the large pillars, which upon closer inspection carry inscriptions. Looking left and right, you will see the sacred ponds. Looking up, you will see the rosettes carved into the roof beams. And looking above each doorway, you will see pendiments with 
narrated carvings from Hindu mythology, and looking to the right, you will see a large standing Buddha statue that is flanked by a collection of other Buddha statues and remnants. End quote. This big Buddha statue is the one that we talked about earlier when we first entered the Western Gopura. You can really get a good view of this big Buddha who's at the center of the Hall of a Thousand Buddhas on the street view of Google Maps. So if you are following along, take a second to find him and orient yourself and just really look at him. He's gorgeous because he's the biggest Buddha. He is really well-preserved. And then he is decorated on all these modern fabrics and colors. And there are prayer mats in front of him. It's absolutely gorgeous. And you can tell by the modern decoration and the care taken and the prayer mats, right, that this is that this Buddha statue is one of the most sacred places of Angkor Wat, and it's active to this day. And in fact, as you go further and further into the temple, it gets more and more sacred. I read on a couple sites that male or female, you have to wear modest clothing, so knees and shoulders covered, because you're entering a sacred space. Um, and so if you're improperly dressed, you may actually be denied entry beyond that first gallery that we just went through. And this is actually quite similar to how the temple worked in its prime. Um, not like with the clothing and everything, but with the sacredness increasing the further you got into the temple complex. Right, The everyday person was only allowed into the first gallery. And then as your status rose, so did your access level to Anchor Wat. So the Hall of a Thousand Buddhas, with that name, it certainly got a lot of Buddhas, right? 17th century Japanese pilgrim writing noted that there were 400 gold Buddhas. Then in old photographs, so like late 19th century, early 20th century at the earliest, the whole collection is memorialized, right? Hundreds of years of Buddhist pilgrims and monks collecting Buddhas and placing them here. There were stone Buddhas, wooden Buddhas, Buddhist steles, which is basically like a canvas painting, except it's carving in a stone slab. And then Buddha Pada, which are Buddha's feet carving. So just all different kinds of Buddha artistry. And based on the art, you can see the different eras in the art styles, which only proves that the collection built up over several centuries. The only bummer is that a lot of these statues are now gone. And there are a lot of reasons why. And I think it's probably a little bit of the three that I'm going to go through, just considering how many there were. So one site claimed that in the first French restoration efforts in the early 20th century, they wanted to re-Hinduize Angkor Wat since that was its original religion. Therefore, the restorers took out a lot of the Buddhist additions, including Buddhas from the Hall of a Thousand Buddhas. And I mean, maybe, but that also seems to be like the opposite of what a conservator would do, considering the Buddhist editions were still super old. And I think actually lasted longer than the Hindu religion because the Buddhists came around in like the 1300s, only like a uh, 100 years, 200 years after Angkor Wat was done. Then another theory is that the statues were removed for conservation in the 1970s. That makes sense, uh, especially because the third big reason didn't have to do with the statues necessarily, but with the Buddha heads. Nearly all of the Buddha statues left in the Hall of a Thousand Buddhas are missing their heads. 
Novelist Alan Lessig says that this destruction is due to the Khmer Rouge, who stole the heads to exchange for arms. We'll be covering the Khmer Rouge in the next episode, so if my research runs into the destruction of Angkor Wat, we'll talk about it a little bit then. But all the sources for this episode say that Angkor Wat miraculously remained nearly untouched during Cambodia's civil war and the Khmer Rouge Empire. Most of the conservation efforts are actually about restoration and keeping nature at bay. Anyways, the heads also could have been taken by thieves during the Khmer Rouge, like during the what is it, the late 80s and early 90s, which we'll talk about in a second. But either way, the Buddha heads are gone, and a lot of the Buddha statues are gone. There's many places they could have gone. So take a walk through the Hall of a Thousand Buddhas on Google Maps. And remember, the big Buddha is in the middle. So, And if you're on the Google Maps, I believe you'll be wanting to go to the left to get into the second tier of Angkor Wat. Now, from what I can see and what you should be able to see if you're on the Google Maps, the second tier of the temple proper is an open space. When you emerge from the Hall of a Thousand Buddhas, you're on the far right of the second level, which is about 300 feet by 377 feet. Some sources say that this area could have originally been flooded to represent the ocean around Mount Meru. And it does look like there might be some sort of canal path that could have held water. But there are also two small libraries, one on each side of the second level. And in the middle is a stone mount known as the viewpoint. Um, this is at the same level. I Okay, I might have gotten this confused, but I'm pretty sure this is separate from the third level the viewpoint is. And that you can climb up there. And if you look west, you can see the libraries that you passed on the walkway and the outer wall fall far in the distance and the two ponds. Hello Anchor's interactive map has a beautiful picture of it. So so go take a look. I don't know. I do. It might actually be the third level. And like standing on top of it is before you go into the four towers. But I'm actually not quite, quite sure. They might take my, uh, my, my tour tour guide badge away <laughs> at the each of the four corners of the second level there are 16 apsara grouped at each corner and those are the dancing female spirits that are all over the temple um, from what it looks like the second level is really like a courtyard where i think probably you are meant to like prepare to enter the third level which is the four towers and the central shrine in the middle seems like originally there were access points to the third level at each corner of the second level where staircases led to the corner towers and the gopuras of the inner gallery. I believe now they've restricted it to either one or two access points, right? Probably to keep all the tourists in check. And the one that I found is in the northeast corner of the second level. It's incredibly steep and terrifying which some historians think may represent the struggle of reaching Mount Meru, the home of the gods. So the third level has a square space with four of the five central towers at its corners. It's 200 feet long and 43 feet high, raising 130 feet above the second level. Yeah, so it's a, it's a long staircase. <laughs> Taurus Cambodia says that the stairs each have 40 steps and they ascend at a 70 degree angle. Now for reference, a normal like house staircase is between 30 and 45 degrees. My legs hurt just thinking about it. 
The inner gallery, so the walkway between the four corner towers, is called the Bakong. The fifth tower is the central shrine, which we'll get to in a second. So each of the original entrances to the Bakon has gopuras, or the ceremonial intricate entrances, and the galleries connect these gopuras with the shrines at the corner towers and to the central shrine. You can walk this whole gallery in, in the Google Maps Street View, so just take a couple paths around. There's a really easy, like, straight path around, around that gallery. There are a couple of statues of Buddha here and there, and it looks like there's, I think there's a ceremonial pool between the gallery and the central shrine, which, I mean, that makes sense to me, right? I'm sure when Angkor Wat was built, they wanted it to be kind of difficult to get to the central shrine since it was only for the most holy. So when it comes to the central shrine, the history has convoluted the architecture a little bit. So it's it's located easily enough, right? It's in the central tower, which is 215 feet-ish off the ground and rises higher than the four that completes the five on a die look. So first, let's talk about what the central shrine was originally used for. King Jayavarma II, who was the ruler during Angkor Wat's construction, he loved the Hindu god Vishnu. So Vishnu, the protector, was Angkor Wat's patron god, right? Meaning Angkor Wat was dedicated to him. Naturally, King Jayavarman II insisted on a statue of Vishnu being the focal point of the central shrine. According to Live Science, the central tower was the very heart of Angkor Wat. And remember, at the time, only the holiest of people were allowed to that very center, and then in the book, Anchor, Celestial Temples of the Kumar Empire, Eleanor Manica said that Anchor's Wat Central Tower, quote, was at once the symbolic center of the nation and the actual center where secular and sacred powers joined forces. From that unparalleled space, Vishnu and the god ruled over the Kumar people. However, when Anchor Wat was converted to Theravada Buddhism, the Buddhists walled, Buddhist walled up the central tower, trapping Vishnu inside. Poor Vishnu. And then at each of the new walls, they set up a standing Buddha. So when you follow the path from the third level gallery to the shrine, you can't actually get in. You'll run into one of these Buddhas. And they are quite beautiful, and they still stand at the central shrine, and you can go up to them on the Google Maps. I had kind of a hard time getting to all four. There's two that you keep running running into, but you can't get to them. So as far as Google Maps Street View will show me, and as far as the forces say, the internal shrine that was closed, it isn't available to view. It, it has been excavated by archaeologists, right? Nearly 200 paintings have been discovered in the central tower since 2010. I think they found like a whole set of previously unknown architecture inside this tower, including staircases and uh, chambers, because life science described two scenes inside a chamber of the central tower. But I don't think that's available for the public. You just get to see the Buddhist, the Buddhist central shrine. So there it is. There's your virtual tour of Anchor Wat in audio format. And I hope you're still with me. And even better, I hope you followed along with Google Maps Streets. Now, I need you for just a couple more minutes, because 
I want to talk to you about how Anchor Watt still stands today. As with most other ancient temples in Cambodia, Angkor Wat has faced extensive damage and deterioration by a combination of plant overgrowth, fungi, ground movements, war damage, and theft. The war damage to Angkor Wat's temples, however, has been very limited compared to the rest of Cambodia's temple ruins, and it has also received the most attentive restoration. End quote. Though this has come from Wikipedia, don't tell on me, it is collaborated by my more reliable sources. This was just worded really well. If you remember our timeline from the beginning, Anchor Wat's population started declining around the 1500s. And while Japanese pilgrims visited clear through like the 18th century, the jungle started to overtake this massive temple. In the mid 19th century, when France basically colonized Cambodia, Angkor Wat was quote-unquote rediscovered, and the next 60 years were filled with exploration. And then it wasn't until 1908 when the École Française d'Extrême Orient, so EFEO, established the Conservation d'Angkor, I'm assuming that's how the French will say it, So, which is Angkor Conserv- Conservancy. So once that was established, restoration and conservation began. And a big part of the conservation Dionco's restoration work was extracting Angkor Wat from the grasps of the jungle. I've seen in several sources that a major restoration happened in the 1960s, but I can't figure out exactly what that was. If it was restoring boss reliefs or strengthening the stones or just continuing to push back the forest. Um, but I guess the, the 1960s was a good decade for restoration. And this was also right when Cambodia was transitioning out from under France's rule and trying to establish their own government. If you look up Angkor Wat, some of the most famous pictures are these ruins where there are just massive trees growing out of the buildings, over the buildings, into the buildings but they are trying to uh, remove those trees so that the temple doesn't fall apart. In 1967, the Cambodian Civil War broke out, which started a 20-year campaign of terror and bloodshed under the Khmer Rouge. This era was absolutely devastating. All restorations ceased on Angkor Wat during the 70s and the 80s during this era. Conservation Dionka disbanded in the 1970s, um, but Angkor Wat was still in incredible disrepair, in danger more than ever because the jungle was still eroding it and tourists and then war put increased pressure on the temple complex. However, really, like, like I said before, Angkor Wat was pretty untouched by both the Civil War and the Khmer Rouge regime. Khmer Rouge camped in Angkor Wat and burned all the wood. And then there was one or two shootouts that left bullet holes in the boss relief or in a boss relief. And then in the 1980s, art thieves working out of Thailand may have stole the art. They might've been the ones who stole the heads in the Hall of a Thousand Buddhas, might've been the Khmer Rouge. Um, so we lost some, some art there, but really that was all. And that's incredible considering the damage that happened to other Cambodian ruins and what could have happened. The Khmer Rouge regime was defeated in 1979 and Cambodia started its difficult long road to recovery, one that it's still on. 
At the time, Cambodia was being run by a Vietnamese-backed de facto government, and then finally the Kingdom of Cambodia was restored around 1991. And because of this political instability, the United Nations, most of the countries, um, but particularly France, didn't recognize the Cambodian government. And therefore, they stopped helping in the restoration of Angkor Wat, or I, like they never came back after they they stopped during the Civil War. So the duty was taken over by the Archaeological Survey of India, or ASI, and they worked on Angkor Wat from 1986 to 1993. Another influential conservation organization that worked on the temple after the Civil War and Khmer Rouge is the World Monuments Fund. From the WMF's Who We Are webpage, quote, World Monuments Fund is the leading independent organization devoted to safeguarding the world's most treasured places to enrich people's lives and build mutual understanding across cultures and communities, end quote. They were the first Western organization to take on Angkor Wat conservation after the pause. They did an initial field mission in 1989, where they found Angkor Wat itself was in desperate need of restoration, but Cambodia needed a lot of help too. By the time the Khmer Rouge were defeated, there were less than 100 Cambodians in Phnom Penh, um, which was the area of Cambodia where Angkor Wat lives. With So less than 100 of Cambodians in that area with a higher education. And this is important because the WMF does more than just restore sites. They work with local communities and organizations to make sure the restoration is sustainable and continues after they are gone. With the permission of the Cambodian Ministry of Culture, the WMF started preservation initiatives at Angkor Wat, as well as capacity building initiatives, meaning training Cambodians in archaeology and preservations. WMF founded the Center for Kumar Studies, which is, quote, a permanent international research and training facility that facilitates the exchange of knowledge between foreign scholars and their Cambodian camp counterparts, end quote. WMF also built a program training and educating people on the conservation of four key areas in the wider Anchor area, one of which was the churning of the Ocean of Milk Boss Relief in the Gallery of Boss Relief. You can read all about the restoration of just that section of Anchor Wall on their website. Some of the methods WMF has used in their ongoing restoration in Anchor Wall, because they're still working under the Center of Coomer Studies, right? They haven't left. So what they've done is creating a system of removing stones, strengthening and restoring that individual stone, and then returning it to the roof. They find these unstable or eroded stones using, quote, interactive GIS-based materials and documentation tools, end quote. I don't know what that means, but I'm sure some of my listeners who are science-y, I'm, I'm sure you will understand. WMF also installed an environmental monitoring system, which I I didn't read this, but I'm sure that that directly contributed to the reestablishment of the ancient waterways that we spoke of at the beginning of the episode, which helped rebuild the foundation of Anchor. They also use ultrasonic pulse and microwave radar testing 
to examine surface and subsurface conditions to identify the most pressing areas of restoration within the massive temple complex. The work was restarted on Angkor Wat in the 1980s. Angkor Wat was still in really poor condition. In 1992, Angkor Wat was listed on UNESCO's World Heritage Danger List in Danger List. I believe that we talked about UNESCO in the Nazca Lions episode, but for a quick rundown, UNESCO stands for the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Their mission is to promote international cooperation in education, science, culture, communication, and information exchange. The UNESCO World Heritage Program, or Center, quote, seeks to encourage the identification, protection, and preservation of cultural and natural heritage around the world considered to be of outstanding value to humanity. What makes the concept of world heritage exceptional is its universal application. World heritage sites belong to all the peoples of the world, irrespective of the territory on which they are located, end quote. With this universal application, being designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site really is a big deal. It promises the protection and continuous upkeep slash restoration of the site because it belongs to the whole world. So when a site is designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site, there are a whole bunch of characteristics it has to have um, to qualify, and then it gets a protection and management plan. To be put on the UNESCO World Heritage Danger List, the characteristics of the site that makes it a universal property of the entire human population are under threat. So in Anchor Walk's case, the cultural value of the art and the architecture, etc. was in danger because of natural erosion and tourist interference. And that's why it was put on the danger list in 1992. Following an international appeal from UNESCO to help save Angkor Wat, many countries jumped into action. France came back, um, along with Japan, China, Germany, and many other countries. They are all now contributing to Angkor Wat's restoration. The German Apsara Conservation Project, or GACP, is one example. This organization's main goal is to protect and restore the devadas that are all over the temple. If you recall from our walkthrough, I said there are around 1,800 Devadas in Angkor Wat, which I was using the term Apsara interchangeably. I don't know if they actually are. I do know that they are both female spirits and or deities, but they're like the dancing women that you'll see all over the walls. You should have run into them if you followed along on Google Maps. But either way, after writing this whole script, I am almost certain that 1800 is massively too small. I think there are more. But either way, GACP's work is no small job, especially because when they first started their project, they found that 20% of the Devadas were in poor condition. A lot of the other conservation work has focused on strengthening the structure of the temple, like the Japanese conservation project in 2005 that restored the North Library that you see on the walkway between the Western Gopura and the Terrace of Honor. I know we're running long, but I can't talk about the restoration and conservation of a UNESCO World Heritage Site 
without actually talking about the UNESCO conservation and restoration efforts. So I'm going to walk you through what UNESCO has required for the protection and management of Angkor Wat, and then I promise I will let you go. So each UNESCO World Heritage Site has a set of requirements with local governments and other conservation organizations put in charge of making sure that these requirements are being fulfilled. Angkor Wat is legally protected by five royal decrees and government decisions that started in 1994 and the last of which was in 2008. In all of these decrees of like zoning and protection, et cetera, et cetera, there are two things I want to point out. In 1996, the Apsara National Authority was formed, which is the authority for the protection of the site and the management of Anchor of the Anchor region. The acronym doesn't fit, but Apsara is in all capitals. I do not understand. I still don't understand from the when I started writing the script. We talked about the water system. I, I don't know, but it is the Apsara National Apsara. Sorry, it is the Apsara National Authority. Then in 2008, the Department of Land Use and Habitat Management in the Anchor Park was formed to work under the authority of Aspara, Apsara National Authority. But really, Apsara National Authority is legally in charge of protecting and managing the Anchor area, in which is Anchor Wat. In 1993, so a couple years before Apsara National Authority was founded, ICC Anchor the International Coordinating Committee for the Safeguarding and Development of the Historic Site of Anchor was established. So they're basically like the shift lead for all of Apsara National Authority's work. They want to be updated on all the scientific, restoration, and conservation projects going on in Anchor. And they make sure that the rules are being followed and that Anchor is being properly managed. Apsara National Authority has been working diligently on the Anchor area since its formation in 1996. They were able to restore Anchor to the point that it was actually removed from the World Heritage List of Danger in 2004, only eight years after it was put on. And there are some sites on the list now that have been on there since the 80s. So I thought that it was pretty cool that Apsara National Authority got it off in only less than a decade. Uh, I'm actually going to leave a link to the World Heritage List of Dangers so that you can see what they're currently working to protect. According to UNESCO, Anchor is one of the largest active archaeological sites in the world. Like we talked about in the beginning, tourism has caused a massive concern over the safety of Anchor ruins. But tourism is also an incredibly important economic contribution for Cambodia, which is listed as a least developed country by the UN. So organizations are constantly researching and conserving and restoring. It's an always ongoing project. One of the research projects that I think has been completed now, but that was incredibly important, was an anthropological study on the socioeconomic conditions of the area to gain a better understanding of the legacy of the Anchor area. So the study focused on tying the local and historical culture to the physical monuments, which brings local and foreign attention to the importance of protecting and preserving Anchor. So understanding the cultural legacy 
would also, quote, assist in the development of the site as Angkor is a living heritage site where Kumar people in general, but especially the local population, are known to be particularly conservative with respect to ancestral traditions and where they adhere to a great number of archaic cultural practices that have disappeared elsewhere, end quote. We've talked about it off and on this entire episode. Angkor Wat is still being used for prayer and worship. There are sacred sections and sacred statues that are active right now. So this is just another reason why Angkor's conservation is active and ongoing. It's a circular archaeological project, not a linear one. With this in mind, a public investigation unit was created to study visitor behavior, note problem spots, and set policies to protect the ruins. Quote, the management of the anchor site, which is inhabited, also takes into consideration the population living in the property by associating them to the tourist economic growth in order to strive for sustainable development and poverty reduction. End quote. So these are big goals, right? Monitoring visitors, and there is a lot of tourism in Anchor, promoting economic growth through tourism, and working on sustainable development. Apsara National Authority is supported in these goals by two major contributions. First, the Anchor Management Plan, AMP, and Community and Community Development Participation Project, or CDPP which Apsara National Authority and the Government of New Zealand work together on. AMP helps with internal organization and then CDPP supports, quote, experimental participation of communities, end quote, and tourist development to improve the surrounding population's incomes. Second, which is a collaboration between the Government of Australia and UNESCO, is the Heritage Management Framework. So this is made up of a tourism management plan and a risk map that identifies risks to monuments and natural resources. Quote, all decisions must guarantee physical, spiritual, and emotional accessibility to the site for all visitors. End quote. All right, folks, that's it for today. I know this one is longer than usual, but I'm also very passionate about Anchor Wat, which I hope that you could feel and I hope that got you excited because it has literally been on my top three places to go list since I learned about it in my seventh grade Western Hemisphere class. I still remember what the classroom looks like. I don't remember the teacher's name, but I remember what he looked like. Those formative memories. You know what I mean? Thanks for sticking with me. Thank you so much for listening. So please share, tell your friends and your coworkers and families that if they finish binging their gruesome true crime podcast, they should give this historical one a listen. We're at 10 episodes now. That is officially enough for a good old fashioned binge. Also, if you like what I do and you feel like you've learned at least one new thing today, right? If you've learned one new thing, leave a five-star review, like the show, follow the show, let the algorithm know that you like me. <laughs> um, as always, go follow the show on Instagram, Nishi History underscore pod. This episode will probably be another two poster. So you'll get lots of pictures on Instagram if you don't want to go looking for them in the sources. Um, I also post teasers and updates on there. So it is worth a follow, even if you don't like the pictures. 
Finally, if you've got any suggestions, comments, questions, anything like that, email me at nishihistorypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to share the Nishi history stories that you've heard. Because even if you've suggested to me, I guarantee that you've never heard it like I'll tell it. That's all for me today. Thanks for sticking it through this long episode. And I'll see you next week where we'll open another time capsule to a Nishi tale in history. 